beginning was the Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory full of grace and truth. Hey, good morning. Happy Family Day weekend. Hopefully everybody has some good plans. Hopefully your Family Day holiday doesn't look like a Jerry Springer episode. That, you know, sometimes everybody gets together and it can turn quickly. Um, but we're excited. We're, we're looking forward to the holidays. This is our first Family Day in Canada. We've got a few plans. Um, yeah, we're excited about it. The... Uh, the opportunity, I, I just love the idea of a holiday that's like, you, you want to go spend time with your family. Just go spend time with your family. I think it's great. So, um, hey, we are going to continue on in John today. We're going to look at John 9. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible, and, and, and you'll see why. Because this guy, it's a story of a, a blind man that gets healed by Jesus, and um, he's got a little bit of smart aleck in him. And so it's fun to read through this story and watch him kind of, with his sight, get this confidence in the presence of, of religious leaders. So we're going to look at John 9. We're going to look at the first um, seven verses here. So if you don't mind, stand up with me, and we will read this passage from John 9. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who had been blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must carry out the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am, the world, I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spit on the ground and made mud from the saliva and applied the mud to his eyes and said, Go. Washed in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he left and washed and came back seeing. Father, we just ask that you would bless this time and this space. Just let your spirit fill this room and let everything that's said be filtered through that, everything that's heard be filtered through you. And God, we know that it's in you that we live and move and have our being. So draw us deeper into yourself this morning. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. So I want to share with you a, a, a Chinese proverb. Once upon a time, there was a Chinese farmer whose horse ran away. That evening, all of his neighbors came around to commiserate. They said, we're so sorry to hear your horses run away. This is most unfortunate. The farmer said, maybe. Then the next day, the horse came back, bringing seven wild horses with it. And in the evening, everybody came back and said, oh, isn't that lucky? What a great turn of events. You now have eight horses. The farmer again said, maybe. The following day, his son tried to break one of the wild horses, and while riding it, he was thrown and broken his leg. The neighbors then said, oh, dear, that's too bad. And the farmer responded, maybe. Maybe. The next day, the conscription officers came around to conscript people into the army, and they rejected his son because he had a broken leg. 
Again, the neighbors came around and said, isn't that great? And again, the farmer said, maybe. Maybe. Here's my question. Can you live in maybe? Can you live in a place where you don't have certainty and clarity? Because I think living in maybe, like this farmer lived in maybe, is essential to receiving grace. I feel like when we crave clarity in things that we don't really understand, it leaves us anxious and even makes us fearful. And here's why I think that. Because craving clarity puts me on a treadmill of judging every situation, of trying to constantly evaluate circumstances to figure out if it's good or bad. Anybody else find that? It's exhausting. And the antidote to this is not clarity. (laughs) Having clarity doesn't resolve that for me. But the antidote to this is trust. Our Chinese farmer friend in his wisdom gives us the perfect example of what it looks like to live in trust instead of clarity. It's to live in a constant maybe. That's to say that we live in a space of God is good and I will entrust all of my outcomes to him. Listen to this quote from author C. Joy Bell C. It's not the law of religion nor the principles of morality that define our highways and pathways to God. Only by the grace of God are we led and drawn to God. It's his grace that conquers a multitude of flaws, and in that grace, there is only favor. Favor is not achieved. Favor is received. Grace conquers a multitude of flaws. Flaws in me, flaws in the world, flaws in circumstances, flaws in situations. And it's trusting that God is both good and sovereign that allows me to receive grace. Therefore, if God is good and sovereign, there is no flaw in me or in the world that cannot be conquered by God's grace. Do you see how that connects to living a maybe life? I don't have to discern what's good or bad in circumstances and situations. But I want to show you why that matters as we walk through this text a little bit further. I think Brennan Manning, an author and writer in his book, Ruthless Trust, sums up the contrast between the maybe life and the judging life when he says this, craving clarity, we attempt to eliminate the risk of trusting God. Fear of the unknown path stretching ahead of us destroys childlike trust in the Father's active goodness and unrestricted love. When we crave clarity... It erodes our childlike trust of God. So we need to press towards trust rather than clarity. I think that's what this blind man did in this story here. And as we press into this, I want to ask you to consider how we see the life of craving clarity in this story opposed to the maybe life that I believe that this blind man is living out of. So my hope is that as we differentiate these two things and press deeper into this maybe life, this trusting life, what we discover is the easy yoke of the life of trust. And we get the freedom to relinquish the desire for clarity.
that we get to find a new level of freedom in Jesus that comes from what Brendan Manning calls ruthless trust. So let's look at verse 2 of chapter 9. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Now, can I just point out right here, this guy was blind and not deaf. He heard this. <laughs> so you've got these apostles of Jesus, these guys that we look at and we want to be like, and they're being jerks. They're taking a guy who's stuck in a disability and trying to figure out, hey, so um, did his parents do this to him or did he do it to himself? Could you imagine you're walking around and you come across somebody in a wheelchair, you and I are out to lunch, and you see somebody in a wheelchair and standing next to them, you look at me and go, hey, who sinned that he's crippled? Whose fault is this? And the guy didn't say a word. (laughs) I would bet that he probably felt really judged in this moment. But can I also point out that that question didn't die with the, the last apostle? We still ask that in the church. We still bring that question up. That question still exists. We see that same mentality when disasters happen or when floods occur or when there's terrorism or an illness or other hardships because the issue of clarity didn't die when the apostles died. We want to have clarity of what's happening and why. And so we look for things that lead us into places where God is not at, trying to discern who sinned that this man was born blind is not the approach of trust. It's an approach of clarity. But then we get to Jesus' answer, which at this point, if I'm this guy, I, would, I definitely wouldn't be quiet during this. But listen to Jesus' answer. It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Did you catch that? The guy is still silent, but I think I would be like, wait, wait, wait a minute. You're telling me that God needed me to be blind all my life so he could show his glory? Couldn't he have just done the pillar of fire or the the cloud of smoke thing again or maybe the locust or the river turning to blood? I had to suffer this so that God could show his glory? Because some of that other stuff that I've heard about in the Old Testament, that was pretty powerful stuff. And yet that man again kept kept silent. I think I would have been pressing Jesus for answers at this point if I were that blind man. I think I would have been pressing hard. It's almost like this guy is already living in an understanding of God's grace that covers a multitude of flaws, even his own blindness. It's almost as if he's already living in a sense of ruthless trust of God. And he can say maybe when he's faced with anything. Listen to this quote from Brennan Manning. I can state unequivocally that childlike surrender and trust is the defining spirit of authentic discipleship. And I would add that the supreme need in most of our lives is often the most overlooked. Namely, the need for an uncompromising trust in the love of God. Furthermore, I would say that while there are times when it is good to go to God as might a ragged beggar to the king of kings, it's vastly superior to approach God as a little child would approach his or her papa. 
I think this is closer to the starting point of this blind man here. I can... Can't say for sure, but I do believe that this man may have had a childlike trust in God, and that's why he didn't respond as I think I probably would have, and said, Wait a minute, that's not right. Why do I have to suffer for God's glory? And I believe that because I think I see him beginning down a path of growing in Christ more intentionally as a result of what happens next. So then we're getting to the gross part of the story now. He spit on the ground and made mud from the saliva and applied the mud to his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. So he left and washed and came back seeing. Now on a side note, let me just say, is anybody else grossed out by this idea of spitting your eyes? Don't get me wrong. I know it's Jesus' spit and all, but I, would, I think I'd be like, yeah, can't you just say the word and I'll be healed? Let me just... Touch. I worked in a, a hospital for kids and adolescents, a psychiatric hospital. The two ways I measured my days, I'd come home dreaming and go, did you have a good day? Yes. I didn't get bit and I didn't get spit on. Those were the only two standards I had to call it a good day. Now this poor blind guy shows up and Jesus is like, Ugh! I wonder what he thought when he heard that sound. <laughs> But, yeah, I know it's Jesus' spit and all, but I still would have preferred another, another means of healing. So anyway, this guy comes back seeing, and it starts this controversy that just flares up all over the place. Because the people aren't even sure if it's the same guy. They're saying, no, it's not him. It's just a guy that looks like him. And the guy goes, nope, it's me. I'm me. So they ask him in verse 10, well, then how can you see? You've never been able to see, and now you see. And in verse 11, he answers, he says this, the man who is called Jesus healed me. So at this point, in this man's newfound discipleship path, Jesus is just a man who healed him. Pay attention to that, because we're going to see this unfold as we walk through this. But then it starts to get really crazy. So they grab him and take him to the Pharisees. And it was the Pharisees' job to make sure that no false belief came in. So anytime there was a supposed healing the Pharisees would have to decide, was it an actual healing or not? Was it of God or not? Should we believe in this person who did the healing? Should we believe in this person who claims to be healed? So all this is happening. Think of it more like a court case. So they, they take this man to the Pharisees. Now in verse 17, catch this. In verse 17, they ask him who he is, and the man says, he is a prophet. In verse 11, the man said, the man, Jesus, healed me. Somehow, in the walk from where he was to the Pharisees, Jesus has now been promoted to prophet in this man's mind. Do you see what's happening? His trust is moving him along the path of discipleship already. And so now this debate with the Pharisees moves from the ridiculous to the sublime. They don't believe this is the guy, so they go and get his parents, bring them in, and say, is this your son? And the parents don't want anything to do with this because the Pharisees have made it clear that if anyone begins to believe in Jesus, they will be kicked out of the temple. Now what that would have meant in this day is you lost your ability to worship as a Jew. So you couldn't worship apart from the temple in that day. But 
you also lost your social system. You lost your support network if you were ever in need. So all of life would change. And so these parents back out and just go, look, he's an adult. Go ask him. So they bring the guy back. And I think at this point, he's had enough of the Pharisees. And they tell the guy, look, we know Jesus is a sinner. And so that's what they're pressing him on, is you need to tell us what happened here, because we already know Jesus is a sinner. And this guy, formerly known as blind, says, yeah, I don't know anything about that. Think about that. The Pharisees are saying, I have to figure this out. We have to figure this out. And this guy's saying, I don't have to figure out anything. I just know I was blind, and now I see. You see the difference? Clarity demands I understand so that I can manage the miracle. But experience of Jesus says none of it matters. All I know is this. I used to be blind, and now I see. And so at this point, we're seeing these two paths unfold really clear, right? The Pharisees are on that path of clarity, demanding clarity. They want to be able to know what's going on so they can manage what's happening, what God is doing. And this blind guy is on a path of trust. The Pharisees are seeking clarity and they're missing Jesus. They want to know who, what, why, and how so that they can judge the healing and the healer. The path of clarity always values understanding over experience. The man is simply trusting that God will do what God will do and is actually finding Jesus. He knows what he knows because of his experience of the only one worthy of trust. And so the path of trust values experiencing Jesus over understanding. I believe that both the Pharisees and the man see that they are pursuing two different things here. One is pursuing clarity, the other is pursuing Jesus, and it breaks down really hard. Why? Because clarity never leads to experience. To seek only clarity is to miss the experience. Think about it. Oftentimes, an experience actually makes clarity less. Oftentimes, an experience makes things less clear, not more clear. Which is easier to express, an understanding of the ocean or an experience of the ocean? It's always easier to express an understanding of something. Our experiences are always harder to convey than our knowledge, than clarity is. And oftentimes the only way I can convey an experience to you is to simply say, if you know, you know. And there's nothing else I can say. This man's experience is what the Pharisees are trying to get at, and all he can say is, if you know, you know. That's all I know. And the Pharisees say, no, that's not enough. We need understanding. We need clarity. We need theology. We need doctrine. We need books. And Jesus didn't come carrying any of that. He just came bringing himself. And so this breaks down. So they ask the guy, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Now, I think the guy's pretty wise here. Because he doesn't tell him. 
He doesn't go, well, you know, he spit on the ground and on and on. Because I think that would have probably pushed him over the edge. Basically, what they're saying to him, though, is in short, give us clarity. It can't be a work of God if we don't understand it. You ever been in that position? I have. This thing can't be of God because I don't get it. Do you know what we're saying when we seek clarity? God, you are free to do what you will do so long as you don't exceed my intellectual capacities. So God, make your mind as small as mine and do what you will. You know what that is? That's trying to make yourself God. <laughs> if I can't understand it, it can't be God. That's naive and that's untrusting. We've all said it though. Oh God, if I could just only understand. If I could just only understand. Think of these parents. God, if I could just only understand why our son was born blind. And we know it was at least 18 years because he's an adult at this point. May have been longer than that. Probably was. I wonder how many times his parents asked that question. I wonder how many times he asked that question. I wonder how many times we asked that question when situations come and we don't see them as good. And we just say, God, give me clarity on this. I just need to know how this diagnosis is good. I just need to know how this car breaking down can be good. And so then we fabricate all this stuff around it, right? Whether we know it's true or not, but it feels good. Well, you know, this diagnosis is horrible, but God's putting me in the position to witness to the doctors. And so we, maybe that's true, maybe it's not. But you know what that does? It takes me out of maybe. This is a bad thing, maybe. This is a good thing, maybe. I'll just roll with what God brings. And here's why that matters. Because growing in Christ intentionally happens when I seek experiences of Jesus over clarity about Jesus. So if I want to grow in Christ intentionally, when that diagnosis comes, I don't need to figure out how God's using it. I simply need to say, Lord, I'm in this and you need to be too. Come into this with me. I don't like it. It's hard. I don't know what to do. I need you in it with me. And the experience of Jesus standing with us in those things, whether they are good or bad, changes us. And it may not change our circumstances one bit. But when we live out of ruthless trust, when we live out of the maybe, we're okay with that. And so now this guy, who's formerly known as blind, becomes one of my favorite biblical heroes. I hinted to this, I gave you a teaser, now he's about to become a smart aleck. I want to meet this guy. I can't wait to talk to him. So, verse 27, they're asking him all these questions, and he's like, look, I already told y'all once, and you didn't want to hear it, so why do you want to hear it again? Are y'all trying to go off and be his disciples too? And so that pushes him a little bit. But that's not the end of it for him. He really drives the stake into the relationship and breaks it down in verse 30 and 31. This is where he ensures that none of these guys are ever going to invite him over for Passover. He says basically to them, well, 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 you guys who know everything don't know where this guy came from? Huh. Then he drops the hammer. And it's a theology lesson. 
Here's this guy who's been blind all his life that now all of a sudden has some deep understanding and knowledge of God that they don't have. And he puts it out there in the presence of the people who are the spiritual leaders of Israel. He gives them this theology lesson that absolutely seals his fate before the Pharisees. He tells them that God doesn't listen to sinners, so Jesus must be a man of God. Think of the theology in that. Think of the theology of that in the Western world. What do we tell people to do every time something happens? Well, you've got, you got to pray about it. There's a plane crash. Let's all pray. Let's send thoughts and prayers over here. Can I just tell you right now that if you don't trust Jesus, your prayers are useless? If you feel the need to pray, can I say, why don't you resolve your relationship with Jesus first so that you're not just wasting breath? But we don't invite people into that. Somebody says, oh, I need to pray about this. We don't ask him, do you know him well enough to talk to him? Because if you don't know him well enough to talk to him when you don't need something, I don't know that he can hear you when you do need something. So let's resolve that. And that's what this man is saying to the Pharisees. And so did you notice what happened here? We started with Jesus was the man Jesus, and then it moved to a prophet, and now look where he's at. Now he's a man of God. You see what's happening in this guy's heart and mind? In a span of minutes, Jesus is moving from some guy who healed me to something much bigger. His childlike trust of God is moving him, and it's moving him rapidly, deeper and deeper in Jesus He's in a process of discipleship, experiencing Jesus more fully and more deeply as he grows in Christ intentionally. Why? Because he's willing to live in ruthless trust of God. He doesn't need clarity. He has trust. But now we get the Pharisees moving in the opposite direction because all they want is clarity. They don't want an experience. They want clarity. And so they're not only moving away from Jesus, but also away from this man. So in verse 34, get this, they answered him, you were born entirely in sin, and yet you are teaching us? So they put him out. Now you remember the first question that the disciples asked in verse 2? Jesus, who sinned, this guy or this guy's parents, that he was born blind? Now the Pharisees are answering that question. They're looking at the guy and saying, you, your mama, and your daddy are all sinners. Get out. All of you. In the South, we'd say, all y'all, for emphasis. Because <laughs> there might be a dog or a cat around that doesn't know it's included. And that's what the Pharisees said to this guy. All y'all are sinners. You might as well get out. The disciples asked the same question. They said, hey, Jesus, can we get some clarity here about the theology of suffering? How does suffering connect with sin? And Jesus said, nah, I'm not going to give you that. But I'll give you some theology around childlike trust. I'll let you watch childlike trust play out in a living example and see where it goes. The Pharisees asked the man for some clarity. And he said, yeah, I don't have any, but I can tell you of my experience with Jesus. Can I just say this is the best witnessing strategy that's ever been made? 
If I come to you and say, this is my experience of Jesus, you cannot refute that. But if I come to you and say, no, Jesus was God, yeah, I'll debate that. Jesus rose from the grave, I'll debate that. He died on a cross for our sins, I'll debate that. But if I come to you and say, I met him in a drunken, hungover stupor on a Sunday morning, and he stood with me and said, you are mine, and I want you, you can't refute that. And so why do I believe? Not because I have clarity and understanding, but because I have experiences with him. We as a church have to seek experiences with Jesus, not simple clarity of doctrine. Doctrine matters. It does matter because I need the doctrine to filter my experiences through because some really bad, scary stuff at times will try to pull you in a direction that's away from him. And if you don't have soundness, if you don't have scripture, you may fall into that. But more important, I have to have an experience with him. And that's what happens with this guy. The last step of his discipleship that began with his childlike faith ends with a deeper knowing of Jesus and a life-altering experience of Jesus. And he's got a new purpose, and that's to worship Jesus. First, Jesus was the man, Jesus. Then he's the prophet, Jesus. Then he's a man of God, Jesus. And now, when we get down here to verse 35, all of a sudden, he is the son of God, Jesus. Jesus comes to him and asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? That's the Hebrew title for the Son of God, for the Messiah. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the the guy says, tell me who he is so that I can believe in him. Now get this, I love this word in here. Jesus says, you have seen him. Hmm. That might be the first time in this guy's life he's been told he's seen anything because he's been blind. And Jesus says, you have seen him and are talking to him right now. Do you see what Jesus is saying? It's about your experience of me. You're experiencing me in this moment with your eyes and with your ears. It's about experiencing me. And at that point, the man says, oh, this is the son of God. I can see that clearly. And he doesn't say that because he sought clarity like the Pharisees did, but because he trusted the one who spoke to him, who healed him, and who he had an experience with. And he says, I believe, and he worships him. Here's my question for you. What do you want? Do you want clarity? Or do you want experience? Do you want to understand the who's, the what's, the why's, and the how's of Jesus? Or do you want to foster trust in him? Let's go back to Brennan Manning for a moment. The beginning of that quote I read you earlier. It's from his book, Ruthless Trust. I can state unequivocally that childlike surrender in trust is the defining spirit of authentic discipleship. I wonder sometimes if we've overemphasized clarity and understanding and intellectual knowledge and underemphasized experience. 
the Hebrew type of knowing that is intimate and experiential and personal. One of the ways we have experience of Jesus is through spiritual practices, things we do to create space in us and with us to experience Jesus. And so here's the practice I want to invite you into this week. It's a practice called fixed hour prayer. Some people call it daily office. It's really simple. It's just a training activity to say, I'm going to pray at certain times in my day. I'm going to drop a stake in my calendar. So for me, that stake in my calendar is 9 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 5 o'clock, and I'm going to pray. And, and here's what happens. Spiritual practices are not the point in and of themselves. They're simply training activities. And we don't do any spiritual practices to experience Jesus. He might show up in those things. But more importantly, we do them because they transform us into the type of people who can experience Jesus. It's what Paul said in Colossians, set your mind on the things above. Spiritual practice are simply me lifting my head from all this distraction and looking up, setting my mind on the things above. Fixed hour prayer helps us become the kind of people who will live in a ruthless trust of Jesus. And here's why. It simply says I'm stepping away from clarity and control in this moment. My schedule is full. There's a lot on my plate. I got to get this all done. I have to press into it. I need understanding. I need to know what I'm doing. And I'm going to step back from all that and just sit in your presence. You see how that's this man experiencing Jesus rather than the Pharisees trying to find clarity? It's basically taking a look at everything you know you need to do and putting it all on hold just to sit in God's presence. And the more you do that throughout your day, the more you'll become the kind of person who can experience God throughout your day. It trains us in trust. It might just be a few moments. For some people, it might just be 30 seconds. For some people, it might be hours. The point is not the duration, but the heart set. It's going to God and saying, I trust you with my time more than I trust my efforts. So here's some of my time. Now, does anybody walk through the day feeling like they have enough hours in the day? No, none of us do. None of us do. So it's counterintuitive from the world's perspective to say, I've got this limited pool of hours. I go to bed every night with a to-do list that's not completed, and I'm going to take some more of that time and give it over here to God. But that's okay, because it bears fruit. The first thing it is, it's a tangible expression of trust. It integrates being and doing into my life. And it trains me to hear God more clearly in the midst of my daily activities. And so the bottom line to all of it is, if we're going to grow in Christ intentionally, we have to pursue a spirit of childlike trust in Jesus so that we have experiences with Jesus. And given the choice between seeking clarity or experience, choose the experience. You'll always be drawn deeper into him through experience over clarity. It's simply saying, this is my life and I invite you into it.
This man's life was blindness begging on the side of the road. Jesus got invited into it. He participated with this man, looked at him and said, I can do something about this if you let me. The man said, yeah, I'll let you. And then he provided the most disgusting means by which anyone has ever been healed. And the guy didn't say, no, 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 no. <laughs> Last thing I need is spit in my eyes. He said, okay. It was trust. Let me pray. Father, that's all we want. We just want an experience of your son this week. And Lord, I pray that you put it upon our hearts to practice this discipline of fixed hour prayer, to set times in our calendar. Not just times, God, not, not times when there's nothing going on, but times when there's something going on. The busy times of the day that allow us to just sit before you and say, you know what? I need an experience of you more than I need to do more things in my own life. And so, God, we ask you to overwhelm us with experiences of you as we walk through this week, as we give that time over to you, as we surrender the desire for clarity and the desire for understanding and simply be, be able to say, yeah, I don't, I don't know. All I can tell you is I was blind and now I see because we've had an encounter with your son. We ask all that in his name. Amen.